Oh, man, so glad you're here. Welcome. Welcome those who are at uh, Pleasant View, Pelzer, or in the chapel this morning, in the overflow, or even worshiping online. Uh, just a great opportunity to be together. Uh, so I wanted to announce, or at least remember, remind you that at Central Campus, starting this Wednesday night, we're going to have a, our prayer meetings are coming back first Wednesday of every month. And uh, if you want to come and pray with some folks about world situations, personal situations, church, all that, just come. Pastor Scott's going to lead us through that uh, Wednesday nights at 7 here in the chapel. So we, we'd love to have you be part of that. So let, let's have a word of prayer. Oh, man, Lord, thank you for the honor of worship. And we pray that our worship is pleasing to you. Lord, we've come today not to hear ourselves sing. We've come to worship you. You're our creator God. And so we take time in our lives in this moment and so honored to give to you our praises. And so we ask that you'd receive them and may they be pleasing to you. And now, Father, as we head into your word, may your word come alive for us. May it change our lives to be more like you. You are the reason we are here. We pray you'd be honored by that. In your name, amen. Okay, guys, uh, so let me just kind of give you a preacher confession. Um, we're going to have to go around the barn to get to the house today. Now, that's preacher talk for this could be one of the most boring introductions you have ever heard in a message. Not in the boring in the sense that it doesn't matter. Boring in the sense that it will require you to engage up here. I'm going to do my best, but... I just know. I've been through this once, okay? I know. And so it, it does have a reason. There is a purpose. So like, you know, sometimes we come to church and like, you know, I can just, I got something popped up here. I don't know what this is anymore. Oh, no. Oh, no. Well, hold on a minute. I'm gonna, hold on a minute. Let me see if we can get this. I don't know what it did, Kimberly. Can you, can you get that off there? Because uh, uh, talk amongst yourselves. This is gonna... <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, that's great. <laughs> something popped up. I have no idea what that is. Okay, so, um, so we're gonna, the reason I want to go through this is i got to lay some theological groundwork for where this thing ends. So just stay with me. I'll do my best, uh, but it, it will get a little better at the end, but probably not much. So we've been talking about the image of God together throughout this entire series on the Ten Commandments. And the reason this whole idea of the image of God keeps coming up in our, in our discussion on the Ten Commandments is because of the flow of these commandments, and it's vitally important when you're talking about the Ten Commandments to understand there is a direction to them. So in the first four commandments, God introduces himself to us. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. This was brand new information, if you will. This was the people of God being formed, and God said, I am not one of many gods as you're accustomed to. I, I am not, I'm, not, I'm not just one to choose from as you're accustomed to. I am your creator God, Jehovah Elohim. That's who I am, he says. And in these Ten Commandments, God continues to teach us what it means to relate to Jehovah Elohim. Make no idols or images of wor in worship. Don't misuse my name because I'm Jehovah Elohim. Remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. All relating to this God. So now what that means, friends, is there's a new paradigm. As followers of God, there's a new way to see life and its meaning. We, we are not an orphaned people. We're not even a godless people 
because we have a father. Our beginning, our genesis, we have a heavenly father God who's introduced himself to us. So now we have, we know our source for life. We know our source for meaning and and for purpose. We don't question it, we know. We have a source of strength and sustenance. We have this source of, of wisdom and understanding. We have a source of compassion and goodness. We have a source of righteousness, all found in this new relationship, this God who has introduced himself to us and claimed us as his children. Do you understand? And because we now have this heavenly father, because we now know who created us, we now will lead different lives. There's no way one can discover the giver of their life and continue living as if that person or that God does not exist. This changes everything. This discovery, this awareness puts life on an entirely new trajectory, if you will. Acknowledging a creator God placed us on this planet means everything now changes for how we see the world, how we see ourselves, how we are to live together. And because we have this creator God, now that that's been established, God gives the remaining commandments to reveal how we're supposed to now live. So put succinctly, we say it this way. God says, I am creator God, Jehovah Elohim. Therefore, you shall. There's a connection there. Because of who I am to you, this is how we live with each other. With the discovery of the creator God being our father, we learned we are not the ones in charge. That is a glorious discovery. You are not the parent any longer in the relationship. We are children of the most high God. We have a heavenly father, which means we don't have to be in charge. And all of creation let a blessed sigh out because we remember, oh, it doesn't all depend on me. I'm not the one it all depends on. This, uh, this, this, and we learn this is established by the first commandment, but it's also established in the first words of Scripture. In the beginning, God created. Please note what is not there. My name. And respectfully, neither is yours. In the beginning, you didn't create squat. God created the heavens and the earth. So that means we can all resign as regional managers of the universe. We are no longer in charge. God created the heavens and the earth. So if God thought this all up, if he spoke this all into existence, if he is the giver of life, then what that means is he has authority over all. And that authority actually carries forward in the New Testament. And I think it's kind of spectacular that this is included in the New Testament. When you think of all that Jesus could have said or could have been said about Jesus, one of the key things that is said is when he leaves to go, prepares to go to the Father, he says this, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. So so what does this new authority in our lives as believers mean for everyday living? 
How does the fact that I have a creator God who spoke the world into existence and I have a savior and a resurrected Lord who carries the same authority from that creator God, how does that impact my life? It means as a believer and follower of Jesus, I now live in the context of a brand new relationship. We have a brand new car smelling relationship with God the Father. Paul pulled no punches when he said it this way, anyone who belongs to Christ, and that's any one of us who have accepted him as our Savior and Lord, has become not a used person, but a brand spanking new person. The old life, what old life? The life we led before we understood our Creator God or our, our Heavenly Father. That's all gone. New life has begun. Somebody say amen. It's all going now. We got some newness up in here. We got a new life. All that I do now, all that I am, all the thoughts I dwell on are now geared to value, treasure, and enjoy my new relationship with Jesus. And any thought, behavior, action contrary to that is from the old life. And so this is what we focus on in this new life. It is this basis for my decisions. It is the standard for my relationships. And it is the source of my morality. When I violate that relationship with God, that is called sin. When I violate the relationship with my heavenly father, that is called sin. When I act or think or behave in such a way that is contrary to how God would have me live, that is sin. Before I understood my relationship with my creator God, sin was all about the wrong that I did to you. I don't even have to be a Christian to understand when I have wronged you and that's a wrong thing for me to do. Or maybe you wronged me. But now, sin is much more than what we have done to each other. The greatest offense of sin is not what it does to me or to you, but what it does to God. That's the issue with sin. It's what it does to God. Now, the way we are wired, that simply isn't true for us. We don't live there. Did you know God actually has an emotional response to sin? I mean, Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, and then like from then to the time of Noah, humanity just violated their relationship with God in this all kinds of ways. You can read about this in the first six chapters there of Genesis. Humanity sinned against their creator God. Do you know how scripture describes what this did to God? Check this out. The Lord was sorry he had ever made them, he's talking about us, and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. The way we interacted broke the heart of God. This is why the image of God is so relevant to our lives. You, everybody okay still? Okay, okay, come on, come on. This is why the image of God is so, so important. Because when I act or think or behave in such a way that is contrary to how God would have me live, that's sin. That is why this whole thing 
is such a big deal to God. That's why the image of God matters and it's relevant to our lives. I cannot redefine you because my father has already done that. And I now honor that in you and in me. Genesis teaches we are actually made in God's image. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. And God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Now, stay with me. We're almost home. We've actually circled the barn, headed back to the house. But it's got to go through a little something to get back to the house. So just breathe deep, chug some coffee in this moment. Stay with me because it's really going to matter toward the end. Okay? Okay. True personhood, true personhood is patterned after divine personhood. So what I mean by that is our understanding of divine personhood is grounded grounded in the belief that God is one, but exists in three different persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We call that the Trinity. The Trinity is sort of difficult to understand and I think even more difficult to explain. It's one of those things in my life I take by faith, but I really can't say that I fully understand. The Trinity is described in Scripture using relational language to help us understand Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Godhead, the Trinity, exists in relationship to one another, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Father is known as Father by virtue of his relationship with the Son and vice versa. The infamous voice at Jesus' baptism is just one example that solidifies this. Jesus is baptized, comes out of the river, and a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. The spirit is spirit by virtue from the, uh, of interaction with Jesus and the Father. So taking our cue from divine personhood, and the image of God that we were actually made in, we can now conclude that we exist, ready? Not separate from, but in relationship with others. This is why our napkin drawing of our mission of our church is so vital. We want to see spiritually hungry people find the relationship with their creator God. Find the relationship with their heavenly father. Be adopted as, as his children. And then we want to see that lived out in healthy, active Christian community. The idea that we exist in relationship with one another changes everything. And, and it is so contrary to every message we're receiving in our Western way of thinking. Because the Western way of thinking sees an individual the individual and sees person as primarily separate things, free to act on their own. I can do whatever I want. You can do whatever you want. As long as we don't keep each other from being and doing whatever we want, it's all okay. But when you discover we have a creator God and we are made in his image, everything changes. The Western individualism says, I am myself as I stand apart from you. The Christian worldview says, I am myself as I stand in relationship to you. Why? Because you're an image bearer of our Heavenly Father. I'm an image bearer of our Heavenly Father. Yeah, or well, you're not a very good one, I know, but that doesn't seem to be relevant here. 
So because we have a creator God who is our heavenly father, friends, and because we are made in the image of God, because we desire, do not desire to grieve the heart of God, how we live in relationship with one another matters deeply. Relationships are essential to human personhood. We, we cannot be persons apart from our connection to others. This explains, friends, why you were so hurt when they did that to you. It wasn't you were just wronged, but your personhood was, was disrupted. This explains why they were so hurt when you did that. This explains why she was so hurt when you acted as you did. This explains why rejection is so painful to all of us. This explains why betrayal is excruciating to us. It explains why broken trust feels like a death. It explains why commandment number nine is so important. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. The word false means deceit or lie or breach of of faith or breach of trust. The word neighbor can be translated friend, lover, or companion. Isn't it interesting that this one is directed? Do not steal, do not murder, no direction. This one Don't lie against your neighbor. Here in the ninth commandment, God now calls for honesty in our relationships. In a negative light, the commandment forbids us from lying about our neighbor in order to damage a reputation or their integrity. That's a against the ninth commandment. In the positive light, the ninth commandment calls for the seeking of our neighbor's good and speaking the truth about our neighbor in such a way as to produce good in their lives and honor the image of God in them. Wouldn't you love to be part of a community like that? Anybody else wrestle with whether or not that community actually exists? Lying can be as simple as flattery not based on truth. We were laughing in the office this week about how often it is said, oh, I love your shoes, when really you don't. Or, hey, I love your shirt. And like, they didn't like it. They just said that. You know, just wanted the person to feel good, Right. This is the best fruitcake I've ever had, said no one ever. I mean, that, that's kind of, those are, those are kind of examples. But lying can be as complex as being dishonest about a relationship or even outright deceiving the people you love the most. Lying can involve exaggeration or wanting to be perceived by other people in a certain way, even if you have to dis- deceive In the book, When America Told the Truth, which was uh, published in the early 90s, the author writes these words. 
Just about everyone lies. 91% of us lie regularly. The majority of us find it hard to get through a week without lying. One in five can't make it through a single day. And we're talking about conscious, premeditated lies. Of the people interviewed, 92% said the main reason for their lying was to save face. Have you ever read this book? Oh, yeah, I've read that. Uh Uh-uh. You haven't read a book? You just, the last book you bought was a coloring book. And you say, did I want to know? Yeah, I didn't read that book. 98% said the reason they told lies was so as not to offend people. Isn't it amazing that out of 91% who tell lies, the 8% are all gathered in, in, a live central, in our live community. Isn't that amazing? We're just here. I'd ask you how you're doing right now, but apparently you're going to lie to me if I asked you how you're doing. So <laughs> There is this story in the New Testament, and this story is why I led us around the barn before we got here today. Because this story will make no sense without the context of understanding. We are creating the image of God. We have a heavenly father who has adopted us as his children. And when we sin, it is, it is an offense to his heart. This is why I told you all these things before we came to this story. The New Testament's church is on a roll. It was just exploding. You remember Jesus has already died, been resurrected from the dead, and then in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost. And it was changing people's lives. People gathered daily for fellowship and worship and studying the word. There were these exorbitant um, acts of generosity that were happening across the body to help the movement grow. There was no one in the community that had need because those that had more gave so those that had need wouldn't have need anymore. The movement was alive and thriving and growing. The new church was living in new relationship in these Trinitarian-like relationships. They were learning what it was like to live with the Holy Spirit, use their gifts and the fruits of the Spirit in their interaction with one another. There was this wealthy couple that were part of the new community. Their names were Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira had a piece of property, and they sold their piece of property. This couple sold the property, and then they kept some of the money for themselves back, and then gave the rest of it to the, new, to the apostles for use in the freshly birthed New Testament church. No problem with any of this. No problem with any of this. This is perfectly normal, good behavior. However, Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, lied to the apostles about how much of the proceeds of the land sale that were going to go to the work. There is no explanation as to why they lied, other than to appear to be something they weren't, to appear to be more generous than they really were. The couple said they were giving all of the proceeds to the work 
which when in reality, that was a violation of commandment number nine. They were lying to appear more generous than they were. Ananias comes in to the New Testament church leaders. Peter is there. And Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? Notice the language. You lied to the... And you kept some of the money for yourself. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us. Is that not stunning? The Western mindset says, oh, no, we're just lying to each other. The Christian mindset is, oh, no. No, no. You may have had the context of lying to each other, but the violation was what it did here to your relationship with God. The sin was not primarily against the people. The great sin of the lie was against God. Ananias and Sapphira had lied to their heavenly father, but lying to the people he was doing life with. He had lied to the heavenly father by lying to the people he was doing life with. Why? Why did he lie? Why do we lie? Are we that afraid of truth? What is in us that causes us to have a pandemic-like pattern of lying? There is a source of the problem of lying. And it has to do, once again, with something further upstream. It's not just we can't control our tongue. It's further upstream than that. And it has to do with who our Father is. And so I started today by explaining to you, reminding you, we have a Father, Creator, Creator God, Jehovah Elohim, at the beginning of the message. What I didn't tell you is what you must know now. There is another who seeks to be your Father. In John chapter 8, Jesus is teaching the Pharisees who he is. He affirms he and the Father are one. Fascinating passage. But the reason I bring it up is because of how Jesus characterizes the other one who seeks to be our Father. Look, you are children of your Father, the devil. So there's the two options on the table. Creator God, Jehovah Elohim, the devil and you love to do the evil things, he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, this is Jesus speaking, when he lies, it is consistent with his character for he is a liar and the... There it is. There's what's at the table. There's... there's there's what the reason is. There's, the, there's what's upstream. When we are not the creator God's children, when we do not accept his adoption of us as his children, there is only one other option. We have a different father. And we no longer look like our heavenly father. When Thomas, my son, was small, 
He looked, well, he still is, the spitting image of me, poor kid. I mean, he, uh, the girls thankfully looked like their mother. Thomas didn't get any of that. It's all me. He's just, and people would often comment to him, even as a little kid, you look just like your daddy, you know, and that's, we dads love that, don't we? Like, yeah, I am not the only one cursed with this. For the rest. <laughs> There's two of us now. I have a small group. You know? <laughs> I remember one time when uh, Thomas and I were talking about everybody says he looks like his dad. And I could see his little mind churning over there. And I said, what's bothering you, son? He said, well, dad, when I get old, am I going to have an M in the front of my hair like you have on yours? Yeah, yeah, took him out of the will right there, gone. <laughs> Said, no, son, most likely you're going to lose all your hair because this is the last. I'm not going to have any hair. No, son, you will not. You're, you know, I'm just kidding to say that. We look like our fathers, and this is certainly true when it comes to looking like a creator God, father or the father of lies. We like to speak the way our father speaks, and he speaks his native language. What's his native language? He has a language all of us are fluent in. It's lies. It's not here in my inability. It is further upstream to whom my life is still dedicated to. Everything out of his mouth is a lie. Anytime he ever uses truth, it is to manipulate or deceive, creating lies, chaos, and distortion. And we all know he certainly does that in relationships here. And so the world held in the grip of the evil one buys into lies like crazy. Consequently, we find that we lie from the very beginning. To Eve in the garden, the serpent comes and says, hey, you know, if you eat the fruit, you will not die. That was a lie. And with a lie, it began. And with our lies, it continues. Ananias and Sapphira ends in a way that nobody's going to write a praise and worship song about. Ananias goes into the gathering and to Peter there and says, hey, I've come to bring this offering and bring in all the offering and Ananias was struck dead. They hauled him out. The Bible says they dragged him out. Sapphira didn't have any idea what was happening. She was a little late. She comes in, same gathering, shares the same lie, and drops dead. This is New Testament people. I wish I could tell you that the people in the room were so outraged, they pick up stones to kind of hurl them at her like they did the adulterous woman. But that's not what happened. I know no other way to say it than God was not pleased with their decision and their deception, and they died. If that makes you uncomfortable, you're normal. It did the people in that day as well. The scriptures say, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. What are we supposed to take away from that? 
I mean, we're not talking about someone not in the New Testament age. We're talking about people at the beginning of the New Testament age. What are we supposed to take away? Here's one. This discloses God's displeasure with sin. When are we going to grow weary of this? God is not pleased with sin. Why? Because it's a violation to him. Particularly dishonesty. We may pray, we may tolerate it, but God doesn't. Dishonesty does not spring from him, but from the father of lies. Here's the second thing that's I think really important. It marked the church as distinct from culture. In a culture where lying, deceiving was normal, bad scales, bad taxes, God says, not in my bride. Not in my bride. Did you know the story of Ananias and Sapphira is the first time the word church is ever used in the New Testament? This story. God loves his bride. He is jealous for his bride. That's you. One more reason that I think is helpful. It reveals that God is active in the church. God was and is at work within the body of Christ, and how we relate to each other matters to God. So what is the takeaway from the ninth commandment? Well, once again, the ninth commandment reminds me that I have a problem. Reminds me I cannot in and of myself cure it. Turns me to Christ. And now Jesus is at the door of your heart seeking entry, seeking to take our lives and replace them with truth, seeking to take our deadness and turn it to life, seeking to take darkness and turn it to light. For many of us, we are shackled by our lies. We have spun such a web of deception. We feel imprisoned. And this is the best part. Because if our lies have offended the heart of God, guess who has the authority to release us from our shackles? Your heavenly Father, Creator God, can set you free can set me free. We are imprisoned and feel there's no escape. We are so deeply into them. For some, our lies are secret behavior. For some, our lies are a secret relationship. For some, our lies are pretending to be someone we're not. Or Our lies are the ones we tell ourselves about who we are or who we will never be. I want to say it again. For many of us, the lies that are part of our life that have shackled us down are the ones that are playing from ear to ear in your brain. And you continue to be fed a string of lies contrary to who God says you are because the father of lies never wants you to remember you're the father, you're the child of the king. So self-condemnation and shame-filled lies circulate in our minds from the old self. Come on, don't leave me up here like I'm alone. Our lies are the ones we tell ourselves about who we are and who we will never be. Our lies are we start to 
convince ourselves that the marriage doesn't need attention. It's, it's going to be okay. Our lives are when we try to convince ourselves the children don't need spiritual mentoring and tutoring in our home. They're going to be okay. Our lies are what we are doing in our business dealings that are, are shady, but it seems like everybody else is doing them or what we say to our employees. But hear me, dear friend, we are not destined to live in the web of deception that we have created. We are imprisoned because we have never come to the one who is truth. We are imprisoned because we are never come to the one who is seeking to cleanse and to forgive and to renew. We will never speak the truth until we know the truth. And we'll never live the truth until we fully embrace the truth. That's what's upstream. When we come before God in honesty and in relationship to him as our heavenly father, God begins to change our hearts. Aren't you grateful? And we will never stop lying until we come to understand what it does to the heart of God. But our dear heavenly father makes all things new. He can set the deceptive heart free. The psalmist wrote, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my God, my rock and my redeemer. Do you know what the hardest part about that verse is for me? May the words of my mouth, that one, okay, but this one, and the meditation of my heart, right? Where the father of lies does his business. How we see ourselves, how we view ourselves, the shame that is within us. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock, Redeemer. Jesus, oh mercy, how beautiful the words of your scriptures are. Lord, once again, we come to this point where we know it is truth, but it is so hard, it seems. And Lord, in and of myself, it is impossible. There is no doubt, all of us feel that. But you have told us through you, it is possible. And so, Lord, we're chasing after that. We're throwing ourselves fully into that. We want to be your children. We want to receive you as Savior and Lord. We want to be free. Hey, listen, if you find yourself caught in the deception today, run to the Father. Run to the Father. He's a good Father. He can set you free. It's the only way. Turn your back on the father of lies and run to the father of truth and love and meaning, the father's image that you were made in. For some of you, it's a return to the father. You've gone down a path of lies. Return to the father. Return to the father. It's okay. You have 
Never send beyond his ability to give grace. Just run to the Father. For others, it's the first time you think, man, I've been living the Father lies my whole life. I want to invite you to begin a relationship with the Father of light. Give your heart to Jesus. And what that means is you tell God, I'm tired of chasing the father of lies. I want to be, I want to be your son, your daughter. I invite him into your heart, ask him to forgive you for your sin. And if you do that, man, go online to Matthew 13 Project at our website and let me know. And I'll walk through the first 21 days with you. Or maybe you want to stop by the prayer room today on your way out, wherever you're worshiping. And let someone pray with you about what you're carrying. Lord, we love you. We seek to be yours and yours alone. Thank you for your grace and mercy that guides us there. In your name, amen.